Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free, Father. Thank you for directing us and guiding us in Scripture, the inspired Word of God that you gave to equip us so that we can go out as servants, as ambassadors for your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the opportunity each and every day to represent Him in this world. And thank you for equipping us with the gospel. What a glorious thing this is to partake in. May we never become familiar with it. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for the substance of that gospel, which is the cross 2,000 years ago, to make an evening like this even a reality to behold. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the Gospel, Salvation and Sanctification, Part 76. Let's start with some scripture. Go to Colossians 1.9. It's a familiar passage we've been to this past week, but it's a good capstone to get us started on a Thursday evening. Colossians 1, verse 9. <clears throat> going to point out a few new things. Thank you, Scott, for Tuesday's message. Loved it. Uh, doing very well uh, with the new schedule. Um, so it's good to hear. Good to see. That's good for my own soul, too, to be fed uh, that way. Colossians 1.9 for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. An awful lot being said from the Spirit on the topic of walking. Uh, believers are called to walk a certain way. Uh, that's worthy of the Lord, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And that's the word that has stricken me now. I'd say this is the third time, and I was wondering when he was going to have me stop and ponder it with you. Qualified. It's a word that stands out uh, once you learn to look at it in verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified. That's the Greek word, hikano'o'o. Hikano'o'o. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, oh, oh. Am I saying three O's there? Sounds like it, doesn't it? Anyways, you know what I'm saying? Qualified. This is important because uh, it says a lot about the passage itself. It really brings the passage together, especially the call earlier, a couple of verses earlier. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Well, how do you do that? I mean, how would you do that? If someone said, hey, walk in a manner worthy of a green beret, you'd say, how the heck am I going to do that? Well, someone has to qualify you first. Someone has to say, you're ready to walk that walk. I've qualified you through whatever means. Otherwise, you're not qualified to walk as a green beret. Or you're not qualified to do this thing that I'm asking you to do. But this is the beauty about God's grace he has qualified us. It means to make sufficient, make adequate, render fit, be made able, competent even, competent. To put that together then, it means that God has qualified you. And this evening's message is very personal. I want you to take the contents of this evening's message very personally. It means that God has qualified you to be able to focus on able to qualified you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. 
That's very encouraging. It means that you're competent. You're able. So it's really just an issue of you getting in the way. So He has qualified you to be able to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. You see, the difference, I hope, between that perspective and the religious one that is busy striving. The religious person says, I'll qualify myself. I'll take the commands in the Bible and I'll meet them with my own human strength. I'll rationalize a few things out. I'll make a little space on my day planner and we'll get this thing done, God. But you don't qualify yourself. You don't sanctify yourself. He saves and sanctifies. He qualifies you to walk in a manner. Remember, I've taught this many times. He's never going to ask you to do something that He hasn't first given you the ability to do in the first place. By grace. Through faith. So hopefully you see the difference between that perspective and the religious one that is busy striving. Do you doubt it? Do you doubt that you've been qualified? Do you still have those doubts in your own soul? As we've been noting with Scripture, specifically Hebrews 11.1, 1, on faith, up here on the board, on faith we accept things our flesh cannot understand. You might say to yourself, I've seen the commands, I've seen enough of them, and frankly, I don't see how in the world I, little old me, pathetic, damaged me, how can I be qualified to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? But yet, Scripture says it. This is not Pastor Ed waxing poetic or trying to encourage you with some false hope or, you know, just to try for the sake of encouraging you. This is Scripture. Scripture says He's qualified you. He's called you and He's qualified you. That's very important. And that's a faith issue, folks. For example, <clears throat> I don't know why I was thinking about this. Have you ever had, for lack of a better term, an identity crisis? If not, just go ask the nearest 40-something-year-old man, and he's likely going through his midlife crisis. <laughs> That's not funny to people? Isn't it like the 40s, isn't it? No? All right. Moving right along. Sheesh. thought that was a home run. On second thought, why not just allow God to provide you with the proper sense of identity through Scripture by faith? Why not just allow God? If you've had any kind of identity crisis, and don't be silly and don't say I've never had one, because we've all had one. We've all had one. We've all wondered about ourselves. We've all wondered who we are. There's always that area. I don't know about you. It was very profound for me. I've shared this with you. Very profound for me at one point in my life when I was sort of between lives. I had all this sort of... I had a giant pocket full of creature credit and street credibility and all those kind of things in the world. And then he says, but that's not who I want you to be. I want you to be this person. And then about halfway between, I was in an identity crisis. Seriously. I was like, this is crazy. What? I had, I had so much invested. But yet, there's so much in front of me. And somewhere in between, it, it was a sense of almost, frankly, insecurity, not knowing exactly who I was anymore. I know I was giving some things up. It, it's not a per- perfect science. You know, you don't just get saved and all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, I'm like Christ. <laughs> right? I learned this huge word, you know, sanctification. Oh my God, I'm sanctified. It doesn't work that way. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of lacking faith. There's a lot of doubt. That's what makes us human. We're not Jesus Christ. We're not perfect. So, if you're in that situation, and I guess we all are to some degree, because none of us are fully sanctified, then why not let God give you the proper sense of identity? through Scripture, by faith. As the Spirit taught us on Tuesday, finding out who you are in Christ. Stay humble, James 4, 6, and keep hearing, Romans 10, 17. Stay humble and keep hearing. We're 
destined to be deceived otherwise. Destined. If you're not, if you don't stay humble and you stop hearing, you're literally destined to be deceived. The flesh is a brittle instrument of unrighteousness, never able to provide convictions that last, never able to afford true security. Only eternal life's perspective can do that. And what has he been trying to give us? God is eternal life. He says, I want you to have my perspective. I want you to have eternal life's perspective. My perspective. You've already been saved and sanctified. I want you to be secure in those things. I want you to live in the reality that is you, the way I see you. All your sins nailed to the cross. I want you to live that way. And when you start living that way, you're going to live a life of gratitude and freedom. That's who you are in Christ. This isn't all, again, just to get you puffed up. This is real. More real than anything. It's Faith, I think it came out on Tuesday as well, faith is a substance, and that substance is more real than this. And I say, how can that possibly be? You can touch it. Trust me, it's more real than this. It's been around longer. It'll be around longer. Faith is real. Again, if you've ever struggled with your sense of identity, why not just allow God to provide you with it through Scripture by faith? For starters, go to 1 Corinthians 15.10. 1 Corinthians 15.10. If you want to know where to start, if you've been a little confused, if you're in that middle place like I described, well, why not start with this Scripture? It's a, as good a place as any. 1 Corinthians 15.10, and I only want you to read the first part of it. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Stop. Just stop right there. By the grace of God, I am what I am. That's a good starting point for your sense of identity. It's not what you've made yourself. It's not what the world tells you you ought to make of yourself or how much the world is impressed with what you've made with yourself. Big deal. It's what God has done with you by grace. And remember this as well, bigger picture stuff. God made you the way you are. If you're ever going to, quote, find yourself, you must first accept this basic fact. A lot of people seem to be dissatisfied with how God has made them. And that's a massive misdirection that you receive from your own flesh. Malcontent with who and what you are. Think about how beautiful you are in Christ Jesus. That new self that you've been given, it's there. It's the same new self that's going to be in heaven forever and ever. It's already been made perfect. You have something perfect to cling to, to identify with. So God made you the way you are. If you're ever going to, quote, find yourself, you must first accept this basic fact up here in the board. <clears throat> as a reminder, 1 Corinthians 12, 11, But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as He wills. Spiritual gifts are a wonderful illustration of the variety of individuals in this world. You being unique. Everyone in here is unique. And God doesn't make mistakes. Have you really been paying attention to what the Spirit's been saying to you personally on this topic? Personally. Not just as this grand thing, oh yeah, God makes everybody different and isn't that wonderful and He works all things together for good for those who love oh, you know, all these grandiose type concepts. Or do you take what He's saying to you personally? Because that's what He wants you to do. I mentioned it earlier. Take tonight's message very personally. Just as He wills, He created you. 
Are you convinced yet that you are wonderfully made? My knee is killing me right now. Am I going to complain? Nope. It hurts. So I just have to shift back and forth. This is what happens when you get old, right, Lois? <laughs> Lois is like this all day <laughs> while she gardens. Pick dandelion over there, plant one over there. Pick a dandelion, plant one over there. That's how she goes down her tomato patch. Pluck a tomato, plant a seed. Pluck it, right? You work with what you got. But how dare we complain? Because we are wonderfully made. As you'll see on Saturday, my next blog is titled, It's Okay, I Was Born This Way. And it speaks directly to the point that the Spirit's making right now. Let me put it this way, and you're going to recoil a little, some of you, but you shouldn't because what I'm about to say is biblically accurate. It's something that's been on my heart for a while now. God created the child abuser, and he loved them no less than he loved you when he created you. God created the homosexual, and he loved them no less than he loved you when he created you. God created the drunkard, the adulterer, the reviler, the liar, etc., etc. And guess what? He loved them no less than he loved you when he created you. In other words, our Creator willfully, not by accident, willfully, created a bunch of sinful, lustful, arrogant, terrible creatures. And he loved the whole lot of us. As a matter of fact, He loved us so much that He sent His Son to die on the cross to reconcile us to Himself. And furthermore, as we're currently studying out in detail, after He does that, after He saves us, He sanctifies us experientially by giving us all kinds of grace. A perfect example is spiritual gifts, as we've been noting. Again, on the board, what's he saying? 1 Corinthians 12, 11, but one and the same Spirit works all these things. Spirit is God. Distributing spiritual gifts to each one individually just as he wills. So let's just make this something really practical for a moment. You may be a flaming homosexual or a prostitute or a thief, you name it, it doesn't matter, strictly speaking, and be a believer, and be given the gift of helps. Oh, no, God would never use a flaming homosexual. Oh, really? Oh, now you're God. So he created that person and says, I can't even save you, I can't use you, I'm just going to push you off to the side. No. Where does it say that in the Bible? Where does it say that he stops using people because they're sinners? Aren't you a sinner? I know I am, and look what he's doing with me. (laughs) So, you may be all kinds of sin, my friends, but you also may be a believer, and you also may function in the spiritual gift. Being a sinner doesn't cripple you in the spiritual life. You see, we aren't supposed, or we ought to suppose that we have the right, as so called, quote, Christians, to deem certain sinful lifestyles as precluding a person from exercising a spiritual gift. With a caveat, there are some pretty demanding specs on pastors and deacons. So there are some things that can disqualify us. But in general, there aren't any, there's not scripture that somehow precludes us from functioning in our spiritual gift. In other words, 
just as He wills, means that God didn't make a mistake when He created you just the way you are. He didn't make a mistake. Embrace the simple truth that you are wonderfully made. Psalm 139, 1-16, with focus on verse 14. Wonderfully made. He didn't make a mistake. He willed it. He willed it. He made you just the way you are, with all the warts and the bumps. He knew you would be that way. Of course He did. And He made you anyways. Let me read to you something I posted on Facebook this morning as I was preparing this lesson. Some of you have already seen it. But let me just share this. As I was preparing this lesson, this occurred to me and I felt like I needed to write it. Well, the Spirit moved me said, you need to make that something public outside the congregation. That's usually when I post stuff like this. <clears throat> but I don't want you guys to get all jealous. Here it goes. Quote, Being a sinner doesn't mean God doesn't love you. God loves you regardless of how He chose to create you. Remember that He created you just the way you are, knowing every way in which you disobey Him before He breathed the breath of life into you. When He commands men like myself to teach His Word, quote, in season and out of season, 2 Timothy 4.2, it doesn't mean we aim to berate any of His creatures. Rather, we are merely explaining what the Bible has to say about the will of our Creator. If you're living in a certain kind of sin, for example, prostitution, stealing, lying, homosexuality, etc., etc., it doesn't mean that God loves you any less. It simply means that something you're doing that He calls a sin is contrary to His will for you. Aren't we all living in sin in one way or another? Heck, the person who perpetually judges a sinner is living in sin by virtue of doing just that. May none of us suppose we play God's part in this. It is true you were born a sinner, and God willed it so. But that doesn't give me the right to judge you. I'm no less a sinner than anyone else. Nor does it give you the right to dismiss God's sovereign will for you. You see, Satan wants us to be at each other's throats by pointing fingers at each other, attributing the right to judge each other to ourselves. That's the lie that separates us from the love of God. Meanwhile, God's Word teaches us that love is the tie that binds us together. Colossians 3.14 If God's love reached across the chasm through the cross to unbelievers, John 3.16, we can certainly learn to love each other, right? In the end, love is meant to reconcile us to God our Creator, who wills only the best for all of us. If we love each other, we don't judge one another, but we also don't lie to each other about our sins. In integrity, we also don't try to throw certain sins out as null and void based on modern thinking. Hebrews 13.8 How you live your life as one of God's creatures is between you and Him. Honesty before Him is the best way to live. That is something I pray for in my own life, just to be honest about myself and my sins before God. I can't do that if I refuse to accept something against His will as sinful. How do I know something is a sin? I read my Bible. And then I concluded with this. God has taught me one very important lesson. Hate sin, but love sinners. Hate sin, but love sinners. 
I figure if I can do just this one thing, I'm doing okay. I know because that's how Jesus lived. Again, that was instigated by a simple phrase that I assume many people simply gloss over up here in the board, just as He wills. It just seems like a dangling thread. Oh, yeah, just as He wills. No, just as He wills. He didn't make a mistake when He created you the way He created you. He doesn't make any mistakes. He knew where to put you. He knew the country, the family. Some of you are like, uh, yeah, your family. Your dysfunction junction family. <laughs> Bill, Todd had to put up with Bill's snort when he laughs, right? I mean, that's bad enough. But God knew that Todd could handle it. Lois is like, I can't. I don't know why he's still questioning that one. So just as he wills, it means something. It means that God didn't make a mistake when he created you just the way you are. Embrace the simple truth that you are wonderfully made. You are. So let's be encouraged by Psalm 139. Go to verse 1. Psalm 139, 1. I think sometimes we can get lopsided. Even well-intentioned believers can become lopsided because we do spend a lot of time scraping away. We do. Trust me, I know. I'm the one behind the pulpit. We spend a lot of time scraping away scar tissue. We spend a lot of time, um, you know, trouncing shrines, religious shrines in our souls, looking in the mirror, looking at the warts and the this and the that. And sometimes we can get a bit overwhelmed and we forget that God made us this way. I might be looking in the mirror, but God made this person that's looking in the mirror. And he says, I'm going to also sanctify that thing that you're looking at. I'm going to sanctify you, which puts all the onus on him. So it's a different perspective altogether. Psalm 139.1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Just as he was, you see. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And the same goes with you. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance in your book were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. That's how intimate your creation is to the Lord God. It's that intimate. Every cell, that came up on Tuesday, every cell in your body, and who can count them? And a cell is atoms and molecules. And underneath that, you split an atom. And underneath that, you got muons and all these other weird things that physicists seem to be preoccupying themselves with. 
Who can, I mean, who can count all these things? God can. To God, it's nothing. He knows everything about you. That does address our key point so far up on the board this evening, just as He wills. It means that God didn't make a mistake when He created you just the way you are. So embrace the simple truth that you are wonderfully made. Furthermore, there's no one like you. Therefore, your uniqueness amplifies the needs we have for each other. There's only, listen, there's only one person that can smile at me the way you do. I can say that to every person in here. There's only one person that will ever text me certain emoticons in a certain series like you do. Sometimes that's good, sometimes that's not bad. Some people really like the poop emoticon. Just saying. There's only one person, and we can each say this to each other, there's only one person that could ever approach me the way you approach me. One, and it's you. There's only one person that can encourage me the way you encourage me. It's you. There's only one person, fill in the blanks. We can't measure the power of encouragement, therefore, never underestimate your impact. Everyone in here has an impact. Everyone in here, whether you believe it or not, you probably don't even notice it, but the, one of the things I do up here, I have about four or five minutes while the song is playing, and I pray, but between those things, I look and I see who's here. And I see everybody here, and I see Robin back there lounging, <laughs> pretending she's writing notes. Every so often she wakes up, she goes, oh, yeah, I'm good. <laughs> right? And I see, like, she's popping pills. I don't know what's going on back there. Good. <laughs> right? But she's here. And she, you still in pain, sweetie? Yeah, she's in pain. She can hardly sit. But she's here. All the way from Fairhaven. And Jim, too. <laughs> Jim's a chauffeur. Jim just drives her. <laughs> right? Now, who's not encouraged that she's here tonight? Joey, what are you... Everybody in here has a purpose. What's interesting when it comes to the flesh is likely something that some of you are already struggling with. Even in your seats in the midst of such a powerful lesson. That is, you are rationalizing why these things simply cannot be true about you. I'd be willing to bet that somebody in here is doing that thing. The flesh is whispering in your ear right now, he's not talking about you. You are way too damaged and flawed for these things to apply to you. He's talking about others, not you. That's your flesh. He's not talking about you. Just focus on other people. Pray for him. Say, oh, whoop-de-doo for you. Because he's not talking about you. That's your roommate. What a lovely chap. Here's a principle that I love that came from the pulpit on Tuesday. Rationalizing in doubt. Human rationalization inevitably leads to doubt. In other words, the longer you spend rationalizing things the more likely you'll doubt. It's slippery in the sense that you don't realize how your walk is being undermined. Meanwhile, the flesh encourages us to dismiss our good consciences and ignore the Spirit's convictions. A la Romans 14.23 and James 1.6. Again, human rationalization inevitably leads to doubt. Go to Romans 14.23. Human rationalization is the exact opposite of faith. Because as Hebrews 11 says, what? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You can't rationalize things you can't see, in other words. Romans 14.23 So if you continue rationalizing, you will continue to live a life of doubt, which is actually the opposite of faith. 
because faith takes away doubts. Romans 14.23, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats. Of course, the context here is given food, but you know the context well enough. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. So you see the contradiction between doubting and faith. Go to James 1.6. James 1.6. So in other words, the spirits is establishing through Scripture that doubting and faith are the antithesis of each other. If you have faith, you don't doubt. You may not know, but you still don't doubt. James 1.6, but he must ask in faith without any doubting, because doubting muddies or spoils or soils faith. These things are in contradiction. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. In other words, the person without faith is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. They have, their convictions never hold. They are like on fire for a, a bit, and then they collapse. Why? The point on the board. Because they spend their time outside of the realm of faith, you doing human rationalization, which inevitably leads to doubt. It's, a slippery, or it's slippery in the sense that you don't realize how your walk is being undermined. Meanwhile, the flesh encourages us to dismiss our good consciences and ignore the Spirit's convictions. To make an analogy out of this, to drive the point home, walking through the door. Faith is like a key. If grace is behind door number one, then faith opens the door, walks through, and receives said grace. Regarding walking, a la 2 Corinthians 5.7, Galatians 5.16 and 25, when stripped of options, it's all we can do. And it's all we need to do. Sometimes you don't, you're cornered. The only thing you can do is step forward by faith. I was watching a documentary on Steve Jobs. I think it was last night. <clears throat> and the mother of his child, his first child, said, Steve, and those of you who don't know Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs is the creator of um, Apple computers. He's attributed with literally changing the landscape. He's like the computer genius, even above Bill. Bill Gates is a genius businessman, but Steve Jobs is the one who actually changed the landscape in terms of personal computers. I was watching a documentary on, on him, and the mother of his first child said, Steve had severe difficulty relating and connecting to others. So he created other ways to connect through technology. Interestingly, Job, Job, Jobs was an unbeliever. From a USA Today article from February 22nd, 2012, titled Steve Jobs' Private Spirituality, now an open book. Quote, regarding Christianity, Jobs once told an interviewer that at age 13, he asked a preacher if God knew about starving children, and the preacher replied that yes, God knew everything. Jobs never again considered Christianity. Supposing this article is indeed accurate, it seems consistent that a so-called genius like Jobs would denounce something he couldn't rationalize. That's the problem with intelligent people. They drive me personally crazy. They love to rationalize, but they're literally idiots. High IQ complete idiot. So it doesn't surprise me at all. I'm not surprised at all to read that quote. I didn't know actually before last night that he actually was an unbeliever. I'm not surprised. I mean, I, usually people at that level of the game tend to be so full of themselves they don't have room for God, but that's a different correlation altogether. It's not exclusive either, so I don't like to say, oh, everybody's up there. You know, it's ridiculous. So I'm not surprised, though. Here's the thing. 
regardless of how intelligent you are, you pale in comparison to God, your Creator. And I love, love, love the Amplified, the last part of Hebrews 3.13 in the Amplified. Love it. By the deceitfulness of sin, its cleverness, delusive glamour, and sophistication. Sin is not a club. Your roommate does not carry a club when you walk through the door, oh, I'm so tired. Club you in the head, drag you out to the club. Right? That doesn't happen. No, it's... Oh, I laid some rose petals out for you. Man, you smell good, I know. Got a little Barry White in the background. Hey, hey, hey. Right? You're like, oh, what's going on? Right? You are completely seduced by your flesh and it's sophisticated, and it's delusive glamour, and it's clever. But all it really wants is your attention. Your flesh hates when you give your attention to the Lord. Hates it. Why? Because it's a self-centered little brat. A manipulative, self-centered little brat. But here's the thing. It's really smart. And it knows you, doesn't it? For someone like Steve Jobs, let me show you what the world did for him when he died. And I'm not by any means trying to disgrace the man's death. Not that at all. I'm talking about the people that idolized him. This famous, genius, unbeliever idol. One picture shows it enough. And by the way, the flowers are something that happened all over the place at Apple stores around the globe. There's a good picture. You've got a young man basically praying to Job's, uh, Job's, I keep saying Job's, Job's' shrine. All these little shrines popped up with his picture and, you know, this apple and all these little things. And people were literally, and in the show I was watching, literally came up and bowing and praying to Steve Jobs in his little shrine. So, what's wrong with people? Seriously, and without getting too upset about it or ranting, ask yourselves that very somber question. That, to me, makes me sick. Why is that person not here? Where's the person like that in our town? And why are they not here? Why are they so enamored with a smart guy who was able to create some, make electrons go through computer circuits in a certain direction and reprogram them? Why are people so enamored with these fools? What's so wrong with people that they'd rather bow to a shrine of Steve Jobs or turn out in droves across the world at a makeshift shrine than actually turn out for Jesus. Seriously, what is so wrong with people that they'd rather enshrine Steve Jobs than bow down to Jesus? Well, I've got a little news for everyone. Go to Philippians 2.9, Philippians 2.9, whether they're bowing or not, Philippians 2.9, for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Oh, it's going to happen. And it's not going to be Steve Jobs. Every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. 
As much as I personally love Apple Incorporated's technology portfolio, it makes me sick to my stomach to think about how the world raised up an idol in Steve Jobs. And just a little factoid. Now, the iPhone is one of many products, product lines, actually. But interesting enough, the world purchased over 700 million iPhones as of March 2015. 700 million iPhones. The first one being released in June of 07, about eight years. So in about eight years, they sold 700 million iPhones. That doesn't account for iPads, shuffles, iPods, uh, MacBook Pros. They're a huge portfolio. I don't know what the numbers are, but they're amazingly high. I opened up Yusabaya Bible Ministries about nine months later after the iPhone shipped. Have taught over 1,400 hours of lessons, written hundreds of blogs, and multiple books now. And do you think 700 million people have viewed these things? <laughs> Drop a few zeros, my friends. Keep on going. Not a chance. And it's sad because I'm teaching pearls. I'm giving away the mother of pearls, the gospel, for free. iPhones are expensive. If you don't get it as part of a plan, I want to say they're six, $700. That's a lot of money. I'm giving away pearls for free. And Jesus is shouting, buy from me gold refined by fire. Not an iPhone, gold. And we can't even give it away. We can't even give it away. How the heck does that work? Can't even give it away. I like the verse that we ended on Tuesday. Go to Matthew 13, 45. Matthew 13, 45. Can't even give it away. Meanwhile, we've got people like the guy on the board bowing down to an unbeliever. Unbelievable. Matthew 13, 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, how about the gospel? He went and sold all that he had and bought it. He said, this is the most important thing I have ever come across. It is the meaning of my life. I don't care. Nothing else matters anymore. Take it all. This is what matters. I just, I'll give everything for this pearl. By the way, doesn't that sound exactly like the scene where the young man who chooses not to buy the, quote, pearl? Go to Matthew 19.20. Matthew 19.20. So Jesus, excuse me, tells a parable of the man who says, this is all that matters. I'm, I don't care. I'm selling everything. I'm giving up everything for this pearl. In contrast is an actual scene that we've covered many times since the start of this series. Matthew 19, 20, The young man said to him, All these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor. In other words, do what the guy that sought after the pearl did. Give up your life for me, and then you can come follow me. Because that's how valuable this pearl is, or should be, to you. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Again, compare that to up here on the board. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Sound familiar? Verse 22, But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Who cares? Honestly, who cares? People like, Steve Jobs was like a billionaire. Oh, who cares? Honestly, who cares how much money Steve, you know how much he has right now? None. None. You know what that's doing for him, an unbeliever right now? In hell, nothing. 
Absolutely nothing. It's unbelievable. And Jesus is saying, I'm giving away gold for free. You can come have it. Here's a pearl. Nope. I'd rather idolize some unbeliever. Well, that was the young man in the example. He's like, I've got too much riding on my own life. I'm not going to give it up for some pearl. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, verse 23, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Too much rationalism, too much at stake, too much creature credit. The reason for all of this good work on walking by faith is addressed in our recurring point up here on the board, that question, why? The answer to the question, why am I not walking in a way that I know is pleasing to God, is simple. It's a lack of faith. The remedy is oh so simple. Faith comes from hearing, Romans 10, 17, and God gives grace to the humble, James 4, 6. It's not an intellectual doctrinal issue. It's a spiritual humility one. On Sunday, we ended with, and we all said it together, if you recall, the gospel is simple. It's worth everything, but it's totally simple. Only man chooses in his arrogance and desire to differentiate himself from his peers to overcomplicate things. Where do you think that comes from? Human rationalism. Human rationalism. That's why I say, you know, if you're talking with an unbeliever, and they just want to rationalize God, don't even waste your, don't cast your pearls before swine. Don't waste your time with them. Why? Because they're not interested. They've already stifled God the Holy Spirit and His ministry in their life, and they're saying, I'm not listening to that person of the Trinity anymore. I just want to rationalize. So if you're sitting in front of an arrogant person to that degree, forget about it. You're not going to go anywhere with that person. Only the Spirit's going to sort of crack that nut. Because you're not. You're just going to sit there and frustrate yourself because you're going to try to play baseball on the wrong diamond. It's supposed to be over there on league or field number two, not field one. Only man chooses in his arrogance and his desire to differentiate himself from his peers to overcomplicate things. And as my new book points out, It is especially fruitful for the intelligent folks in this world since complexity lends itself well to their being able to stratify themselves above others. That's creature credit. Oh, yeah, and it exists in the faith. It exists in churches. Oh, you bet. You bet it does. And then you have the same group of people wondering why they're doubting. At the start of class, what do we say? Human rationalism leads to what? Doubting. Doubting is not faith. That's why. These intelligent people spend their time rationalizing the Word of God instead of actually believing it. Isn't believing it actually easier after all? I mean, why not just read the Bible and say, since this is God saying this, I'm just going to actually, you know, believe it. I'm not going to sit here and try to rationalize it and write a bazillion notes and try to, I don't know, prove it. What? I don't know. What? Just believe it. Read it and believe it. Faith comes from hearing. God gives grace to the humble. Sounds simple enough to me. But you know that roommate. And I was, I guess I'll have to end with this, this point. You want to know what has zero desire to stratify? Ask yourself that question right now. What has zero desire to stratify? Love. Love has no desire to stratify. Love is patient. Love is kind and not jealous. 
Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love's not interested in stratifying. Love's not interested in creature credit. These things are mutually exclusive. <laughs> That's how you know you, or even sometimes you shall know them by their fruit. Others have a lot of faith because they have a lot of love. And because they have a lot of love, they're not preoccupied with trying to be a standout in the wrong way. They're not trying to preoccupy themselves with being better than their neighbors or any of you. They don't come to church trying to one-up everybody else. They don't come, as Scott said on Tuesday, they don't walk into a room and go, keep my eye on you. That's right, Robin. Keep my eye on you. You're threatening me from way back there. I see you with all your relaxed mental attitude. I know it's just the drugs talking. <laughs> what's wrong with people? What do you mean, what's wrong with people? That's called the flesh. It's all the flesh wants to do. It's all the flesh has ever done. The flesh is unloving. Grossly unloving. It's manipulative. It may say, it may use the word, I love you. Look at the rose petals. I love you. It's really seducing you. So don't ever get caught up in words. Love has no desire to stratify. Do you want to know what Jesus said about receiving and living the gospel? Revealing one's discipleship? Here's what Jesus had to say about believers, a.k.a. disciples. Go to John 13, 34. And I think I'll end here. John 13, 34. So it's true. Love has no desire to stratify. John 13, 34. This is what Jesus had to say about being a disciple. And it's the same with us, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Not hyper-stratify, not compete, not super-sanctify, <laughs> right? We can make up a bunch of words, can't we? Let us call it the doctrine of super-sanctification upon hyper-doctrinalization, upon rehabilitation. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Think about, just put things into perspective. Just think about, who, first of all, who's saying that. Was there anyone, I mean anyone, even remotely, in the same ballpark in terms of greatness as Jesus? Not even close I mean, this is the most humble, magnificent human being ever by a long shot. There's the rest of us, and then there's Jesus, like, way over there. Right? And then when it comes to humility, he goes on the other side. It's incredible. The guy that had the most to stratify himself with actually was the most humble. He says, I just want you to love each other the way I loved you. He knew he was perfect. He knew he could have literally annihilated anyone. Could have buried any of us in so-called doctrines or any of that stuff. But that's not what he was interested in. And it's not the life that he's interested for you to be in. He doesn't want you on that treadmill. He says, you know what? When, when the world sees my disciples, I want them to see one thing. Love. When you enter in a room, don't go... Brrr. 
say, who can I love here? Who can I show a little love to? Who needs Christ's love right now? Who needs me? Because I've been wonderfully made. I'm unique. God's going to use me somehow, some way. I don't know how. But I got a little love in me. (laughs) Thank God I got some love. And Jesus said himself, look at verse 35. He says, by this all men will know that you are my disciples. If you what? Have love for one another. Look, love's not anything. Love's not jealous. It's not interested in stratifying. And he says, that's how they'll know that we have love for one another. Sounds like a good end of the lesson, huh? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.